Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Streams of Winter, live stream 12, Lady Stoneheart. Hello, and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy, and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for tuning into our live stream this afternoon. I'm very excited to be talking today about a character who we really don't know much about in The Winds of Winter, due to the show excluding her altogether. It's Lady Stoneheart, everyone. Are there any remnants of Catelyn Stark in Lady Stoneheart? Is she a vengeful zombie, or is she misunderstood? And what will she be up to in the upcoming novel? To help me answer these questions and more, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello! Hey everyone! Thank you for being here today. Welcome back to the live streams. Very excited to be talking about Lady Stoneheart and a little bit of Catelyn Stark, who happens to be one of my favourite characters. And as well, I know that she is a, a favorite of today's guest, who we are very happy to welcome back to the show. Uh, Joe Buckley, thank you for being here with us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back again. On a, in general, anyway, for, uh, especially for this subject, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, really, really glad you could come back for this one. We had you at the beginning of our Riverlands conversation, talking about the prologue few weeks ago or maybe more than a few weeks actually but your your book ending our riverlands live streams because we know this is a favorite topic of yours as it is of mine so yeah very good very glad you're here so quick reminder to everyone about spoilers we're talking about the books uh sample chapters maybe not so much here today but also be making uh, comparisons with the tv show not really many comparisons to make today but we will t- mention the TV show, so basically spoilers everything. So time to get started with Lady Stoneheart. Over to you, Yoke Boy. Okay, let's get on with Lady Stoneheart. Such an exciting character to think about for us all. So let's go back to Catelyn, shall we? Let's go back to the beginning. Catelyn Stark is the mother of the Stark kids, and in a Game of Thrones, she finds herself in the middle of serious conflict And really, she's a woman in a man's world. Can you tell me, both of you, what you enjoy about Catelyn's character during those increasingly desperate times in Westeros? And we'll start with you, Joe. 
Oh, I think you're kicking off with the most frustrating question of the day. I know I'm going to be in 10 minutes thinking of 10 more things I should have said. I've made no secret of Catelyn being my favourite character, my favourite POV in general in the entire series. She's the one whose emotions and actions I feel most connected to. Uh, her worldview, her priorities really seem to hit a specific point with me. I basically respond to her the most. Her bravery, her spirit, her love for her family and all she tries to do for them. I love that she will not just allow the world to sweep her and them up. She fights, she claws. She's very wise in terms of her uh, protective nature and kind of a cooler head in this time of growing war where everyone's kind of forgotten how bad that actually is. And uh, she's saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, And I actually just really enjoy the storylines we get, the kind of things she gets to see, the Riverlands in the opening act of the war and everything we see with Rob. That's really um, that's really kind of my favourite stuff to look at. And she's kind of just unique as a POV. She's the only woman we get in her age bracket, the only mother, save for Cersei, who's a bit too big of a nutcase to really compare to. So she's kind of out of it. So she has to shoulder that load narratively. And she's also the introduction to uh, a lot of this world and how it's set up politically. She's the sharp one, the knowledgeable one, and she's brilliant on that end. And she's also the window into not just one loving family at Winterfell, but another, at least the memory of another, at Riverrun and the Tullys. Uh, So we get two really special places, and no one else actually does that. Everyone else is very much just one family or no family. So I think we kind of take for granted that George has given us that and given us a, a mother as a main character. It has been done before, but now it's done so much more and George is part of that. So, Although I've not done justice to how much I love her, that's kind of my reasoning. Well, I, I agree with everything you said. You really nailed it. Personally, for me, she's the most relatable character. When I started reading the books, we were the same age. Sadly, I've gotten older. <laughs> she hasn't. But uh, really, her her inner conflicts and her motivations were all so real and normal. Everything from the, her protective instincts around her children, which, in all honesty, actually includes her attitude towards John. And I think her comments uh, to Rob about the Blackfires really reveals this kind of deep-seated anxiety that she has about the conflict that could come. Uh, between them or their descendants later in life. So from that to this feeling that she always has, like she's not doing enough for all of her kids. Like if you are doing something for one, you're somehow leaving out the other. And I think there's not a mother on this earth who has multiple children who can't relate to that. Uh, She's just so intelligent. She has great instincts. And as a point of view on the war, she's absolutely fantastic. What a bold choice by George, really, to show us this enormous, sprawling military conflict through the eyes of the mom of the story. For me, uh, she's perfect for it. When she threatens to knock Stannis and Renly's heads together, I really feel that. When she makes mistakes, she owns them, and she keeps on going in spite of it all, because that's what the situation and her son requires. So really, you know, I just, I can't say enough. Like you, I haven't done justice to it, but um, this is just a few of the reasons why she's absolutely one of my favourite characters. And thanks to both of you for those emotive responses, and that really reflects on the character very well, I think. So we get this great character in Catelyn, 
And sometimes George likes to foreshadow and hint at future plots or events. So I was wondering if there's any amount of Lady Stoneheart foreshadowing when we're seeing Catelyn. And I'll take this, guys. In in the Game of Thrones, Arya and Jon Snow are talking about a coat of arms. John jokes that Arya should wed Stark to Tully in her arms. And Arya replies, a wolf with a fish in its mouth. It made her laugh. That would look silly. So a wolf with a fish in its mouth. Keep in mind that later Arya drags her mother from the river. We see there's a literal wolf with a fish in its mouth. So that's very interesting, I think. And next, and still in the Game of Thrones... Catelyn finds it hard to weep for men that have died protecting her from the mountain clans. It says, Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone. And this, I think, is a clear reference to Lady Stoneheart. Then in Clash, we have Catelyn thinking that her reflection in Renly's green-tinted armour makes her seem as though she's drowned. It says, beside the entrance, the king's armour stood sentry, a suit of forest green plate, its fittings chased with gold, the helm crowned by a great rack of golden antlers. The steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate, gazing back, back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond. The face of a drowned woman. Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? Wow, that hits me, that one. And finally, we have the ghost of High Heart with her rather unusual and strange prophecies. She gives the Brotherhood Without Banners this tidbit. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted with red tears on her cheeks. But when her eyes did open, oh... I woke from terror. So various foreshadowing going on. I've said four instances. There might be more if you scour the text. But to me, this shows that Lady Stoneheart was always part of the plan for Catelyn in George's mind. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think you're you're dead on dead on there. Uh, like you say, you've just had. I don't have the skill that you guys do looking back and finding these references. You've done a, a great job there. But even without um, actual evidence from the text i think just the feel of it just the feel of early catelyn the spirit we get essentially right away when she fights for bran uh with the cat's paw that's kind of her first action really that you can really remember from the series and it's that extra going of the uh, going the extra mile rather um not only for that but when it comes to this investigation into the knife and in the war she doesn't just sit at winterfell she's going to go out and and do something and to be fair she's not completely uh, pacifist when it comes to thinking of their enemies as well so i just think right from the introduction we do get this capacity for uh, being proactive i guess mm-hmm. yeah i think you know she might be a vengeful revenant but her motivation still always centers around her children and it's not just about vengeance. Uh, she still wants to find her daughters and presumably keep them safe. So it's not exactly 
textual foreshadowing, but I think it's pretty plain that Lady Stoneheart is a kind of distilled, concentrated version of Catelyn Stark's emotions and motivations of something we'll be discussing later on, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Catelyn versus Stoneheart will definitely investigate that further. So Catelyn tries to stay by Rob's side as much as possible to protect her son from the inherent dangers of leading as a king during wartime. Yet at the wedding of Edmure and Roslyn, alarm bells were going off as we see the chapter through her point of view. So what were those warning signs and to what extent is what comes next Catelyn's fault, Joe? Well, firstly, let me uh, just give a tip of the hat to you because I remember listening to your uh, specific episode on this on this specific, specific chapter a few years ago and it blew my mind. It really gave me a, a different reframing of it. That was probably after my first read. So this took me right back to listening uh, to that for this for these notes. Um, personally, I would bulk her calling any of it her fault, uh, unless we want to go really wide and look back to her taking Tyrion on the road, etc., etc. But by that measure, everything is everyone's fault, so I won't do that. During the wedding ceremony itself, or I guess the feast afterwards, she's definitely wrapped up in her duty as a sister and a mother and a tully. She's being political there. And we can see her kind of political and observational skills are still as sharp as ever. It's just that no one would have this in their mind. It's not a thing you need to worry about because it never, ever happens. Of course, no one would ever do that. It's just outside the realm of possibility. And people are acting like they are supposed to be doing. Edmure is being like any groom would be. She even compares herself to Roslyn when she's uh, when she's looking at her, so she doesn't think there's anything completely amiss there. And she has every reason to think that Rob is safe with his guards around him and sword belts are on the wall. And he's got a bloody army outside, so nothing's going to happen, are they? They've got more important things to think about in that moment. But to be fair, she does actually start to suss, and when everything does go down, uh, you know, she does click pretty quickly. I think if she was to do it all again, if she had her copy of A Storm of Swords and knew what was coming, the only thing she'd actually really be able to change is probably just take the opportunity to dance with Rob, because she turns it down, and that's one of the harder parts to read for me, that you could have had this last dance before everything bad happened, but uh, unfortunately you did not. Hindsight, I guess. Yes, I agree with that. Um, look, people have their to own their actions in fiction, just like in real life. right? Um, I don't think that not doing that is an, a charge that you can really lay at Catelyn's doors be, because she, she feels her flaws very deeply. And really, as the Red Wedding progresses... From, you know, from their journey up there, when and when when they arrive and and everything, she knows something is amiss. She she can feel it. She's got all these kind of like niggling feelings. Uh, alarm bell number twenty five. I don't know whatever number is Grey Wind's odd behavior. She really knows the protective value of of the direwolves from the Bran, Summer, and Catspaw situation, and what's going on with Grey Wind from the time Rob gets back from the West has been making her uneasy. So that's been going on for a long time. That's just one thing that kind of strikes her as odd. She's got great instincts. So he said that, but 
The fact of the matter is that for some time she's been suppressing those instincts. Number one, because the men in her family have made her feel like she's exaggerating or overreacting. Maybe, you know, in, in real life, I'd say that's this insidious accusation of uh, the patriarchy saying you know, to a woman, you're, you're over-emotional, you're hysterical. Uh, so she's dealing with that. And Rob has been holding her at arm's length as he navigates being a king. This is really perfectly normal also and relatable for a 16-year-old young man and his mother. Um, so the real tragedy, I think is that in A Storm of Swords, she allowed herself to be marginalized as far as Rob's decision-making goes, which led to him making his own errors in judgment. And we could point to some of those. And I saw someone in the chat pointing out to, uh, pointing out Rob not allowing, uh, not listening to his mother and sending Theon to Pike. Big mistake on, on his part in a situation where Kat absolutely nailed that correct decision that should have been made. So could she have been more assertive and really put her foot down and said, Rob, you really have to listen to me? Maybe. But she was consciously making an effort to let Rob grow and be his own man, which represents a very real struggle in the life of any mother and their young adult child, especially mothers and sons. It's very important at, at that age, and especially if your son happens to be a king, you kind of have to let him go and, and be, do his own thing. <laughs> yeah, I think you're dead on there. Really, the whole table is kind of set by the end of Clash and Storm is, for her and Rob to a certain degree, just kind of, I used to call it the death slide when I was going through these chapters. They, they, they get on it at the top and there's really no getting off by this point anyway. Excellent. Yeah, slippery slope towards doom. And the Red Wedding was a traumatic read and was such a significant event that it seemed to even signify the end of a literary act. This is where we witnessed the horrific death of Catelyn. But what I want to know is, did she become Lady Stoneheart before she died, or was she shaped by her subsequent resurrection? What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think like you say, emotional read is, is one way to put it. Even, I don't know what read I'm on now, 7th or 8th, but I think everyone, when they have to reread that chapter, they always have to put the book down, have a bit of a sit down, take a breath of fresh air, because it's still very, very weighty. Um, and like we said, the capacity has always been there in wanting to fight and take revenge, and we see that even before her death. She slaps Edwin, she uh, runs towards Rob, then she crawls towards Rob, then she grabs a knife, she'll do anything she can. But in the specific moment of her death, or just before, she thinks she's lost everything. Rob, her other children, Ned, probably her brother and home too. That's in the back of her mind somewhere, I'm sure. So everything she's worked so hard to protect, like Lady Gwen just said, has, has not gone well. She's failed, basically. So all that's left is vengeance, hence what she does to Jingle Bell, which is a pretty good sign of what's to come in terms of innocence. But it's also complex as she kills him as part of keeping her word and honour. She says, if you don't let Rob go, I'm going to do this. Mordefrey does that anyway. So, okay, you you might break your word, but I won't. Which kind of flies against the themes we get in Feast, which I'm sure we'll come on to later. But yes, I would say an element of Stoneheart exists in those split seconds before or during death she would take more vengeance if she had the opportunity she would pay the phrase with their own coin so to speak 
But also actually being resurrected does play into that because it creates this mindset of there there are no rules. Death has nothing waiting for us. I'm not going to go to a bad place. As far as we know, they haven't given any indication of that. So I can go around doing whatever I want. It doesn't matter if I murder people or lie or break guest right. There's this darkness on the other side. I don't know how much George is going to go into that side of things. And we might have that argument about John as well, but it definitely is worth thinking about. Either way, I think it's brilliant structuring from George and just creation from George to have this life-affirming anti-war person who's trying to keep everyone alive for three books then turn into the ultimate sign of pure violence and loathing no matter what consequences she brings. Uh, So as we've said so often, the vengeance across the Song of Ice and Fire isn't without consequence. It's just a huge theme and it's getting bigger and bigger as we move into the Winds of Winter. We expect it to be one of the main themes of the Winds of Winter. But the unbridled vengeance of Lady Stoneheart and her Brotherhood Without Banners is something else too. It, It blends the theme of broken men and women with vengeance and with, as you said, lack of rules, really the freedom to give free reign to your darkest impulses which is what Catelyn did in that final moment of her life. But oddly enough, she was also keeping her word in that moment, and vows and promises are going to be another huge theme in the Stoneheart arc, specifically in The Winds of Winter. Yeah, agreed. So, at the end of A Storm of Swords, during the Merit Frey epilogue, this is when we first set eyes on Lady Stoneheart. During your first read... I want to know if you can take yourself back to when you're turning those pages. What were your reactions to this plot revelation? Did it immediately seem very exciting or did it feel sort of unnecessary or something else entirely? What do you think, Joe? Uh, I think to call it a surprise doesn't even come close to doing it justice. I would call it the biggest blindsider in the entire series. I think only Ned and John's deaths come close, and I think they are actually uh, not even close themselves, to be honest. No one sensed Catelyn would actually come back to life after just being involved in, in, like you say, a a kind of genre-defining literature highlight. Everyone knows this moment, but thanks to the TV show as well, but even just in the books, everyone knows about this major, major thing that happens. Um, And we know, we feel the emotional weight of that event, at least I do, definitely. So to discover that someone we love is actually still here from it and has kind of escaped that terrible ending, that really sad ending to a really sad arc, it sounds brilliant. It sounds like George has granted us the ultimate wish. So yeah, when I read it, I was definitely, definitely very excited, not just because I love Catelyn in general, but just the the quick turnaround. Uh, But... Then we actually get a look at her face and we see what's been done, what she's doing now and what this wish actually looks like. Well, that's kind of ultimate George, isn't it? And it's obviously built on a lot during Feast of just kind of uh, turning things around on us. And I asked at the time when we were going through this on, on Scraps and Scrolls whether George could have got away with not having this reveal here at the end of Storm and and actually delaying it to Feast because we just had this big moment with Sansa and Peter Baelish's reveals, which could have been a perfectly fine ending to that book, I think we will agree. But everyone said, no, we like it here in the epilogue, and I would have to agree. Like I say, it is a massive carpet pull from George, one of the very, very worst moments of the series, or in many series of books, uh, like I say. 
in which we lose not one but two of our favourite characters. Uh, that that event is so dire. It happens almost halfway through the book, but even at the end, after a relatively kind of like good end to the book in terms of uh, Tywin dies and Danny does conquer Marine and John becomes Lord Commander, they're all kind of good things. But it doesn't feel that good because we've still got this like rotten taste in what's happened nearly, I don't know, half the book beforehand. And we get this one thing that no one would have dared hope for, that one of those characters did come back only to make us discover what that actually means and it's not so pretty. It's incredible writing. Mm-hmm. Truly. I mean, I- I'd love to say that I saw it coming, that uh, Arya's dream of Nymeria dragging Cat's body ashore, and then you see through Nymeria's eyes Beric, Thoros, and Lem riding up. It at least hinted that maybe... Just maybe some of Thoris's magic might be called upon, but I didn't. I was stunned, and I have to admit, like you, I was I was happy to know that that she was back, and some phrase were paying the price because that's all I wanted. Well, George does love to stir that bloodthirstiness up in all of us, doesn't he? Only to turn around and show us how ugly those impulses actually are, because then we see her through Brienne's eyes in A Feast for Crows, Brienne who really knew her. Uh, The first person that we know that knew her, that sees her actually, as she has become. And that is so incredibly tragic and heartbreaking and horrifying. And I think it really wouldn't have worked if that was the reveal. So kudos to George for getting it just right, for giving us the knowledge of what had happened to her and then the space to uh, sort of absorb that horror through Brienne's eyes. And I was kind of, I felt torn, like it was a great surprise as you guys have outlined but I remember the first time I read it, I was like, isn't this a bit cheap? But of course, when I when I was able to reflect on it, I, I thought, well, actually, there's been resurrection since the prologue. So it shouldn't have been a surprise, you know, and then you get to dance and you're, you're thinking it's going to happen to John. So it was perhaps not as out of the left field as you you first thought. But it's it's something that I've grown to you know, love and I'm very excited for the Winds of Winter for this and maybe part of that is because HBO for what for whatever reason omitted Lady Stoneheart so it makes it so exciting because you haven't been given any clues about the plot points zero we've got no we've got no leads nothing's for, formed where her plot's going to go in my mind so it's like an open field for me so in that respect it is one of the most exciting things about the winds of winter and to stay on the subject of the epilogue what could be gleaned about lady stoneheart from that chapter what did this bit of writing tell us about lady stoneheart joe i think the main thing to take away from it is we get this foreshadowing for the the breaking or abuse of guest right that we see in Brienne 7 and Brienne 8 in in Feast, when Merritt says, hey, this kind of thing is not allowed, Lem just tells him, well, we have a rope and that's all we need to do it. So you get this whole can of worms opening about basically who holds the bigger stick and uh, if we're obeying any rules at all anymore, while uh, Thomas Seven's 
he just said straight up, oh, yeah, we lied. Uh, we know we, we said we would keep you safe, but uh, we're not going to do that. So it's a huge signal that honour and truth and kind of parlay and like safe passage, they've all been abandoned straight away, which is important given how much focus fair trial was given during those Aya Brotherhood chapters during Storm. Um, so, yeah, like I say, it just sets up this big conundrum during Feast and it's kind of... Uh, Stoneheart being willing to unleash the true nature and pushing this broken man theme that we also got a lot from Brienne. So I think straight away you can see this isn't Catelyn that's come back because she was quite high on a lot of those things when she was alive. Indeed. And boy, wow, is that broken man thing going to be huge in Feast, right? So right here we get the first indication that these guys, this brotherhood without banners that we gotten to know through Arya's point of view, have changed. There's a real feeling of there's something different here. We don't really understand what it is yet. We don't get the full impact of it until later on in Feast, and it's built up slowly at that. But the Merit epilogue told us two basic facts. Catelyn Stark is alive, and she's pissed. And we're left to wonder what comes next. And the reveal of that really doesn't happen until the very end of A Feast for Crows. So we get a whole book of kind of wondering what's, what's coming of this, you know, what is going to be the actual impact on the on the narrative. Okay, so I want to get back to something that we touched upon earlier, but it's just too juicy not to discuss. Catelyn was, for the most part, caring, kind and compassionate Whereas Stoneheart is presented as this kind of vengeful, hate-driven revenant, so our patron Christine wonders how much of Catelyn there is residing in Stoneheart, given this disparity between the two characters. Have I got this right, Lady Gwyn? Is there a bit of disparity? What do you think? Well, yes, obviously there is, but obviously also... All of her memories remain. She knows about her children. She knows about the phrase in the wedding and the vows Brienne and Jamie swore to her. Uh, she wants to find her remaining children, possibly more than she wants to kill Freys. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're dead on there. I'm going to kind of combine this question with the last one you asked, Joke Boy, about why we have this epilogue. Because it's a quick line, but the Brotherhood do ask Merritt about uh, Sandok again and Aya like, like you say Lady Gwen so we know that Stoneheart knows that Aya is alive and that she's looking for her and she might even know by now that Aya was mere feet away uh, feet away from her the twins although I'm not sure how but either way it'd be very tough to hear but it's really key because we know straight off that this isn't just a mindless ven vengeance machine that's been given back to us Callan is in there there is something in the world that she wants other than death and murder, there is something that would add positive meaning to her. Even in the shell of a horror monster, she does have the capacity for something to make her happy or something to love. And I think the other part of it is just, like I kind of hinted at earlier, it's just the opening of avenues for healing. Like I said, she was the person with the most tragic end possible. She, she thought all her children were dead, and even when they're not, well, apart from Rob, and she might actually get the, a second chance and wipe all that away with something happy. What if she hears that Bran and Rickon are actually alive as well? What if she actually gets to reunite with Aya or Sansa or all of them? How 
incredible would that chance be to see? Hence why it is placed at the end of Storm. I think it is actually, even though it's a very dark chapter of someone being lied to and then hanged, uh, it's actually quite exciting way to finish this massive book of just the possibility, especially for us Catelyn fans. And But then again, it's double-edged, as it always is with George, because we have to play that off against the quality of life she actually has. Yes, there's the possibility of these amazing things happening, but then actually look at her, because it's not a Disney film, it's not kind of lights whizzing around her, and then the Catelyn we knew before is back nice and whole, and everyone's happy with it. Uh, she's brought back her scars with her, like Beric, and except she's got physical ones as well. So she's got constant reminders of this great crime and of her losing her own mind and her own grisly murder. So it's just, it's nothing easy with George. It's nothing one-sided. So we just have to constantly ask ourselves over and over again, is this a quality of life? Because we've had from Beric through Aya's eyes, he's described the experience to us and it's not nice. So we do, do we even want that for our, our favourite character? Do we want the possibility of reuniting with her children or do we not want her to have to experience this it's always george just making us have all these questions we can never have everything easy thank you george yeah thank you george <laughs> i think uh i think one more thing worth pointing out is all those kids at the inn at the crossroads orphans and foundlings mostly collected by the brotherhood taken in by them po- probably somewhere in their search for aria Neither the Brotherhood nor Stoneheart simply choose to leave these children who aren't the ones, the one that they're looking for, which they certainly could have done, that they've proven themselves to have become very different than the group of, of people they were when they took Arya and her companions in. So, you know, they could have just let these kids go on and, and be wandering the Riverlands, but they didn't. Um, our patron fabulous wonders if that indicates a spark of compassion and i would say emphatically yes on some level at least cat may have ended her life with these feelings of hate and pain and despair and vengeance all topmost in her mind but those feelings were inspired by a deep love that she had for her family and specifically her children and that's something that we really shouldn't forget so is is that a sign that she might be a little more than a re- revenge-fueled zombie? Could there be other indicators of that? And will there be any kind of nuance to her character? Or is she going to be an all-out monster, Joe? Monster might be applicable, but more in an overall sense. If you're reading back through the histories or you are nowhere near the Riverlands and you don't know or care about Catelyn and her children, then yeah, sure, you might end up describing her as a monster, especially if you're a Frey, and then they probably call her a monster. But she has obviously retained her wits enough to make decisions. She's thinking things over. She thinks tactically. These She's still leading this huge group of uh, kind of like guerrilla warfare soldiers, etc. She's not just shuffling from place to place, hunting down stragglers with her arms stretched out. She is a leader, and we see that in Brienne 8. We can see her weighing up different options and considering things, what to do with Brienne. Uh, I'm not sure how many actual human elements of living she's lost in terms of food and sleep like Beric did. Uh, it's often brought up that she's only died once, not the six times like Beric, but then she's also been dead a lot longer. So George maybe has that shortcut to kind of make them uh, a little more similar, but she's definitely more fueled than Beric, I would say anyway. 
Yes, and not only that, but I am personally quite curious about that trip she took into Hagsmire and the Neck. That's where Rob signed his will, and he sent emissaries, Galbert Glover and Mage Mormont, to, to represent him to Howland Reed. They're still alive. Is she somehow seeking a way to carry on Rob's legacy? And looking for her girls is an obvious thing, at least on reread, but this is something a little more subtle and has yet to be expanded upon. It's probably one of the things I most want to see in The Winds of Winter. Does she have an actual plan beyond hanging phrase? I think hold that thought because we've got more coming up. So Lady Stoneheart was resurrected by Beric and... She now fronts the BWB. In effect, what can we say about the relationship between Lady Stoneheart and the BWB? Given that the BWB began as a sort of merry band of Robin Hood-esque outlaws, and are they really fitted together well at this stage? What do you think, Joe? Uh, Stoneheart and the Brotherhood, they're something I've been talking slash thinking about a lot lately because we've just finished Feast for Scots and Skulls and uh, Valor Aridus. I think it was a genuine question early in Storm, for me it was anyway, exactly why we got so many chapters with the Brotherhood through Aya's eyes. There's loads in the, the first half of that book, especially when they end up just disappearing uh, halfway through when she gets kidnapped by the Hound. But it's because we need to see the comparison between the plucky lads out to do the good work in the name of the small folk and protect all the people. As you say, a merry band. We see them over and over again. Now we compare it with what we actually find a little bit in the epilogue of Storm and then completely in Brienne 8. And it really hits home that this isn't a plucky group anymore. This is a dark, corrupted group who have either been allowed to indulge the worst parts of themselves in someone like Lem or have been just kind of dragged along for the ride because nihilism seems to be the word of the day, like a, a Jane Heddle or even a Forrest. Uh, it, it's really striking and really quite moving. Lem and Forrest, I think, are the, the two you really need to look at in that chapter. There's kind of Forrest's um, disenfranchisement with, with everything that's going on versus kind of Lem's corruption. And let me, let me add this in about Lem. As for cool, he was one of the ones who really didn't want to think about Beric being resurrected and he kind of just put his hand, uh, put his head in the sand rather and just got on with it. That's a lot harder to do with Catelyn uh, or Stoneheart and that might have kicked off this change because we find out in that um, Brienne chapter that he had a wife and daughter who were killed and how bitter must it be for someone who's lost people that recently to see that people can come back but not his people someone else so it just makes him even more bitter about the whole thing it makes him probably feel like he's just being played with by the gods that he doesn't matter at all um it's a little bit reminiscent of Aya asking for us about who can come back and and how and whatever else but um in terms of him in this chapter and, and going forward with the with Stoneheart Brotherhood he's let his cloak go sodden because Beric could at least channel his anger and hurt into something good for the world whereas Stoneheart doesn't seem as bothered about that she just lets it go unchecked so it's that precise vengeance versus justice argument and what's the difference it's almost as if the leadership and the atmosphere it creates can have a really positive 
or negative effect on a group of people, a, a little bit like our respective countries are going through at the moment. Yes, indeed. I think we can we can all uh, <laughs> <laughs> see the truth of that. One of my favorite quotes from Feast actually attests exactly to this divide. It's Thoros saying to Brienne, justice, I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights and heroes. But some knights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. So were they ever about justice, is what Thoros seems to be asking. This is such a philosophical question to me, and I just love to think about, you know, all the all the things he's trying to get to the bottom of here. It's like he's probing this idea and finding that there's something slightly nasty hidden underneath it, which ties in really nicely to Sandor's speech about knights in A Storm of Swords in the Hollow Hill. How long can a human soul, whether it belongs to a knight or a freedom fighter or a mother or a little girl, withstand pain and violence and slaughter before it breaks beneath a strain? Deep philosophy. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's interesting what I said earlier about them starting off as a kind of Robin Hood band of merry men. And now they're contemplating their own darkness how did it happen what what was the the point where they broke finally was it a, a slippery slope or was it a single event that kind of pushed them over the edge it's interesting to discuss many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And we've talked a lot about the importance of vows in the situation with Stoneheart, Jamie, and Brienne. That's going to kind of kick it all off in the Winds of Winter. Stoneheart and the BWB now have the pair captive. And she has misinterpreted Jamie's sending his regards offhand remark as being purposefully aimed at Rob during his death. The situation could not get any worse or intimidating for Jamie, but perhaps he does have those vows to protect him. My question is, why would Lady Stoneheart give value or credence to vows spoken when she was Catelyn Stark. Lady Gwynne? I'm not really sure that she will place a lot of value on those vows, given that she has Bruce Bolton's words ringing in her ears, quite literally the last things she heard before she was murdered. I am quite sure that Jamie and Brienne, however, will make their case regarding the vows. And in the end, I think 
think my feeling is that it's going to be Thoros who stands up and demands that they have to let the gods or God decide much as they did for Sandor in A Storm of Swords. But I do think, because I think she has some capacity uh, for thought, for rational thought, that Lady Stoneheart will understand that if Jamie's champion prevails in this trial, I'm sure he's going to have, that he'll be absolved and, and she's going to have to, uh, maybe not happily, but she's going to have to, uh, you know, let him, let him move on, just like they did with Sandor in Storm Swords. Yeah, I think it's it's also worth remembering she's suffering for a kind of a double kick to the stomach because she believes that Brienne, who who was a trusted friend, at least Jamie is on the other side. At least he has kind of an excuse for breaking vows and and turning cloak. But Brienne was supposed to be her her friend. They shared something special together. So she's really not going to be in the mood for for sticking to her end of the bargain if neither Jamie or Brienne are. It's just uh, it's all too too recent and too similar to what happened to Rob. So she's really not going to be. Uh, in the mood for listening to that kind of argument. Um, and something I spoke a little bit about earlier, that vows and rules just don't seem to mean much to her at all anymore. We get the hint in the in the epilogue, but we really find out about it in Feast because, okay, sure, she went on back on a promise about ransom delivery, but that's not too big of a deal. Uh, but really, I don't think enough people talk about that Brienne 8 chapter where we find out that the Brotherhood actively use guest right as not just something to abuse but as a trap they're actually saying oh come in come in you can rest at the inn and then uh, in the morning they're hanging by a tree and after three books of having it really hammered into us of how important this concept is to the basic goodness of people and the world and the fabric of uh, the fabric of society and the fuss we've all made about the phrase breaking it the brotherhood now think it's it's fair game and maybe that's an eye for an eye thing and it's kind of like, well, you started it, we're just following you or kind of like Pandora's box has opened. Whatever it is, it's definitely corruptive of the souls of the Brotherhood. Like I said to a Jane Heddle and Brienne even sees that straight off. She thinks this young girl, she's involved in all this thing. It doesn't even seem to affect her. So that's definitely not the Catelyn we knew. And most importantly to me, it's definitely not what Ned would want. This is his nightmare. This is the opposite of everything he taught his children. It's in the very first chapter of the series. This is how you deal with criminals and people who need to die. You do it this way. And this is the literal opposite. But then again, to apply to that, Ned had uh, Ned never had to watch any of his children die in front of him. So he can't really talk up, can he? Who's to say what he would actually do if he had seen Sansa's head being taken off our iron? What what kind of uh, rage his icy heart would actually let out. So what rules could we be willing to break if we were in Catelyn's position is a, a worthy question of asking. Yes, it, it really is. I think that's a great point. The end of Ned's life proved that he was willing to go pretty far to save his children. So, you know, I don't know. That's that's a little different from vengeance. He never really seemed to be much about vengeance as far as his brother or or his sister or his father went. But at the end of the day, no man or woman can predict how he or they, anyone, would react to the situation that Catelyn found herself in, uh, losing her children and everything, her husband, everything that meant anything to her, one by one. Uh, it's, it's very hard to pass judgment on that because we haven't walked in those shoes. 
Okay, so let's walk in Stoneheart's shoes for a minute and get rather dark on the theme of vengeance. So we all know what happened at the Red Wedding. It's a shared trauma that everyone in the fandom can relate to together. It's seared into our minds, given what happened at this Red Wedding, and that Stoneheart is out for revenge. Many fans believe we are building up towards a Red Wedding 2.0, as it's called. There's hints in A Feast for Crows that there could be an upcoming Frey Lannister marriage, and so the stage could be set for another monumental moment in The Winds of Winter. So, do we think there will be a Red Wedding 2.0, or is this purely a fandom invention and maybe some kind of wishful thinking. And if so, how do we see this event playing out, Joe? I think there will be uh, something of that nature. I never know how to guess these things because George always seems to scupper me. But I've seen a lot of people um, suggest or think that it would be taking back River Run. That would definitely make sense. She, she would want River Run back. She would want it out of... Um, out of Frey Hands. I want it out of Frey Hands because I love River Run, so I'd like to see that. And and last time I was here, we spoke about the Blackfish might be involved by then, and it could all be... That's definitely what he wants as well. You can go in and you can kill Wem and Frey, and, and Jenna is half Lannister and half Frey now, so that's two birds with one stone. But even then, it seems... Um, you know, they weren't even that big a part of the Red Wedding. I could see this victory kind of being a bit hollow. It depends what happens to Redmuir, really. Because if they take the castle back and Edmure's already dead, and or Brendan as well, then what are you actually going to do with it? Who are you going to leave it to? So I, I don't. She's really interested in keeping it herself. So I could see this being a kind of melancholy, empty victory where maybe you slaughter hundreds and thousands of Freys, but so what? Yeah, no, you don't get as much satisfaction as you might have wanted, and maybe that's what pushes her north, which I know we'll, we'll talk about later on. But you're right the inclusion of a wedding would perhaps do the trick because I can't see any other reason why they're going to gather, especially now that the snows and the winter are coming. So you can take out more of the guilty parties at least, not that Stoneheart is really a stickler on whether they're involved or not, she just wants to kill them because of their surname. But I feel personally it's more poetic justice to have the phrase take themselves out via this kind of ambitious civil war that we've got lots of hints of and seems to be brewing that would be more fitting for their nature. But then does George actually have time for all of that to happen during the, the span of the books? So perhaps we'll get both and he'll play both fields. We'll get a large contingent, maybe even Walder Frey himself, getting taken out at River Run, and then the rest left to collapse in on each other for our enjoyment. Yeah, I, that wouldn't surprise me if somehow the Stoneheart gang continues to kind of cull the herd, <laughs> leaving leaving the way clear for House Frey to fall apart. I mean, think about it, if you had a situation at River Run where it was a much smaller scale kind of thing, they're not going to have this gigantic wedding like the Red Wedding was. I mean, it could just be a handful of people. Maybe Walder Frey comes down, maybe, you know, brings the, the daughter to, for Davin Lannister to marry, and maybe there's really just that few number of uh phrase involved but you know they managed to take them out which you know without Walder you've got yourself a good old-fashioned civil war that's gonna occur so 
I would love to see the phrase devoured from the inside out by this mistrust, fear, and division, which is exactly what Varys is trying to accomplish in King's Landing, as he says to Kevin uh, in the epilogue of Dance with Dragons. So it would be a nice set of parallels if you had these two sets of baddies getting their comeuppance by just, you know, sort of eating themselves from the inside out, which, come to think of it, is kind of similar to what might be playing out with the Boltons inside Winterfell. So maybe this is going to be a major theme across the board when, when it comes to Winds of Winter. Okay, so Red Wedding 2.0. Here's the Radio Westeros theory about what could go down. In a Game of Thrones, Catelyn imagined roasting Walder Frey on a spit. It was a rather curious thought that seemed to come out of nowhere. And remember we talked earlier about the foreshadowing in A Game of Thrones. These kind of one-liners that kind of echo further into the story. So could this thought of roasting Walder Frey on a spit in fact be part of foreshadowing the Red Wedding 2.0? So... Like I said, we've been theorising this eventuality for years. I I think there's a chance this could come to pass. It was a curious thing for her to think, and it, it this idea makes even more sense when you consider that Catelyn's vengeance comes from Walder's breaking of guest right. That was what of, of all the what really upset her about seeing her son die and uh, be taken advantage of in that way and it was the breaking of guest right which really resonates it you know up north and we've seen with the fray pies so we know that from the rat cook and the fray pies that forced cannibalism is seen as an appropriate punishment in the north could this all be fitting together? You know, w- roasting Walder on a spit. So that's a funny thing to say. And then you think, well, could he be served up to people? Force cannibalism? It all kind of, f- in my mind, fits together in a jigsaw sort of way. How this exactly would unfold, I do not know to be sure. But the Red Wedding 2.0 could make us disgusted with ourselves for craving vengeance in the first place, once we see what Stoneheart is cooking. Yeah, I've I've personally always been a little suspicious that Walder Frey will just die peacefully in the sleep because George does have a cruel streak and it would be like him to kind of give us the middle finger. But I think what you're saying, uh, this does all really perfectly fit together and it would be a really good opportunity for doing something that George loves doing which is giving us exactly what we want and then making us feel really bad about it we've seen it with with theon with cersei even joffrey to a certain extent and everyone definitely hates is that what you call bittersweet yes exactly it's um it's everyone hates world of Frey. uh but if we actually ended up with this scene maybe we just hear about it but maybe we actually have to see it in in an actual chapter we have to see this 90-year-old man, or however he is, crying out in pain as he's slowly roasted. That's going to turn some stomachs and definitely fits in with the anti-revenge message and yeah, just makes us feel pretty bad about ourselves. And actually, 
it even fits in with this idea of Stoneheart drifting ever ever further away from what Ned would want because this is basically a repeat of what happened to his father with um, with Ares. So definitely not playing into Ned's good books here. So I wonder if if this happens or, or something similar, so, something to this effect where Stoneheart just goes too far at the Red Wedding 2.0, who would the POV be? It's, a, it's an interesting question, especially if you're one of these people who think that Bren and Jamie could sort of go their own way after you know a trial or something and if they're not in the picture then it then you do have to kind of rack your brain how we could see it have you got any ideas joe well like you say you just don't know what's going on with brienne and jamie that's definitely a, a kind of blank area on my mental map of wins but she could definitely fit in this role brienne especially because maybe it puts her in a bit of a, a barristan situation where she's having to witness these things. She's not supposed to say anything and just kind of get on with it. But she does do end up doing the right thing where Barristan didn't. Maybe she even pulls a John and puts Walder Frey out of his misery or something like that. Uh, even Jamie would be an interesting choice for the exact same reason. He definitely doesn't like the phrase uh, and he can just witness a little bit more of what his father's left behind. So that they both fit, but I would say probably Brienne would fit better myself. Well, we talked about this between ourselves and, you know, I started off thinking, well, Brienne, like you say, is the best. But if she's not around and if Jamie's not around, I can't think of another POV. We know George isn't going to introduce any more. So that leaves us with an epilogue POV of fray destruction, given that we think it's going to this book is going to begin with a kind of um, ransacking of Edmure's uh, procession. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, this is the more I think about that idea. I think it would be a great way to see it. You know, maybe Frey, daughter number 12, or grandson 32. We've, But we've already had a Frey epilogue, so I don't know, maybe not them, but whoever it is. Having this event in an epilogue would allow for the development of the revenge arc and its consequences across the entire book. It would really, like you said, it would bookend the novel with similar scenes, while also allowing Jamie and Bran to move away from that storyline if, if they hadn't done so already. So, you know, I, I like having the freedom to let them move out of the Riverlands um, sooner if if that's what the story calls for. If it had to be either Jamie or Brienne, I really, I, I mean, I could envision either one. I, I like some of the things that, that you were saying, Joe. My money would probably be on Brienne. And um, like you said, maybe she's doing something uh, heroic or merciful. It would definitely fit the bill, I think. So, so however Lady Stoneheart's greater plan pans out... I think we can agree that there will be death and blood and carnage one way or the other. Stoneheart has little left to lose in her quest for revenge. But I wonder what you guys think the overall message regarding this grand theme of revenge will be. What's the ultimate feeling that George wants to give us about one person you know, getting getting something over on someone that's wronged them, full stop. What do you think, Joe? 
I think I think it's a major piece of the series overall, and I think the message that George wants to get across is that evil begets evil, revenge breeds revenge, and as well as being a really key part of Feast's message as a whole book, I think probably Ilaria Sand puts it best in her much underappreciated uh, little mini speech during uh, during dance where she's saying that it just goes on goes on forever and ever more and more people suffer and it doesn't end it just corrupts everybody we've seen that with sandwich again we've seen it with this literal representation in the face of the haggard face of stoneheart even danny at times and i think most people will agree it's aya's main theme or purpose in the story and really it just doesn't get you what you want it's bad basically it's just bad that's what he wants to get across and again, that there's a difference between vengeance and justice. And I do think it's interesting that Ned is kind of the the symbol of one and now Catelyn is becoming the symbol of the other. So it's going to be really interesting to see how caught up in that kind of web the various Stark children get and which one they lean more towards by the end of the series. Yes, I think just in short revenge equals loss of humanity eventually that's going to be the message and stoneheart is the living embodiment of that concept so we're going to see that whole uh, whole thing play out in in well i don't know if she's living i guess that's not (laughs) the the unliving embodiment (laughs) but yeah it's, it's definitely going to be yeah pretty powerful I think it will be powerful and I think that that power is going to reside in the fact that he's going to make us enjoy it quite a bit but then he's going to kind of pull the rug from under our feet and you know hold up a mirror and say you know this is what you're asking for you know someone being eaten alive or you know some some disgusting act of revenge and you know going from fist pumping to kind of oh maybe I should Maybe I shouldn't have uh, enjoyed that. That wasn't really what I'm all about. So I think that's what he's going to toy with. So if Stoneheart does say her her desire for revenge against Freys and Lannisters, what what do we think her character could then do? What what if she achieves her goals, Lady Gwyn? What what if we what if we think of the future what comes next what what if Walder Frey's dead and all the Freys are dead and she has celebrated some heinous act and she's got what she wants what's left for Lady Stoneheart well I want to say that what Lem tells Brienne she wants her son alive and she wants the men who killed him dead she can't have her son alive so she is gonna have to settle for this the latter right she wants to feed the crows like they did at the red wedding phrase and bolton's eye will give her those as many as she likes all she asks of you is jamie lannister so she's gonna get phrase in the riverlands but she's not gonna get any boltons in the riverlands she wants boltons she saw Roose bolton stab her son through the heart she wants him. She's she's not going to just settle for Walder Frey by any means. And where are the Boltons? They're all cozied up in Winterfell, which is her home. And possibly there's someone else there that she might be interested in, in uh, wreaking some vengeance on. So, yeah, I think uh, 
Bolton's Winterfell northwards. That's where we're heading. Yeah, it's a good rabbit hole to go down. That's certainly what I've been doing the last few days, writing these notes out. Uh, like, like you say, uh, once the frays are gone, or if they're ever gone, you can look for Lannisters. You could go to Castle Rock or King's Landing, even if you really want to go and see Cersei. That that pales in comparison, I think, to especially yes, what you said about Roose, but also more she hears Theon's still alive. He's the the first betrayer. He kind of brought down everything if you want to trace it back it's not exactly a long rope to trace back the red wedding to Theon taking Winterfell and he's supposed to have killed two of her sons so if she knows he's up there with Roos which like you say she actually saw him murder her son so that's the murder of half your family right there and in your house and you might even hear that uh, Aya is apparently marrying one of them now I assume that Jamie is going to tell her that's not correct but why would she be trusting Jamie at any point soon? So you never know. She might still be still be thinking of that. And depending on the timing, maybe she even hears Rickon's returning. We don't know how in what order this stuff is going to to come in. So that makes an interesting choice because if she does hear that Rickon's up there, but she hasn't found Aya and Sansa, does she go up? Does she stay down? We don't know. It really depends. There's a lot of room for this kind of timing stuff. And like you say, maybe even that evil Jon Snow is going down south as well, and he's been resurrected. So we definitely don't want Rickon or Aya or the Winterfell in general to fall into his hands. So yes, Northwood, like you say, Lady Gwen, I think that fits in a lot with George's kind of original thinking of her going up north and well, out above the wall, but still. Uh, we've already seen her probe the neck, like you said, so maybe she's starting to look at look at, uh, going up there and how to do that and what she can collect on the way in terms of Rob's will and certain people and Ned's bones, maybe even how to read. And I did, I did think that would all just be intent rather than reality and she would actually just stay in the Riverlands because she's tied to them so thematically. But I do not think that anymore after doing these notes and I've, like I say, gone down this rabbit hole for two days straight now. Uh, and I, I wonder if by the end of the Winds of Winter, whatever path Stoneheart, Stoneheart takes, are we going to see her end? I mean, is her story really going to go into the last book or, or can we kind of bookend it by the end of Winter Winter? And could she die? If, if she is going to die in Winds, I would like to know from both of you how you see her going out. And this is a question inspired by our patrons B-Word and Corin Halfhand. Okay, so it's a multi-part question. <laughs> so I think that she carries on into the next novel, especially uh, since we're talking about this Frey revenge arc possibly taking up all or, or most of the Winds of Winter. She needs her Boltons, and however that happens, uh, it, it may not come in this book specifically but we we cited an interview that George gave to the Chinese Esquire magazine in our current episode wherein he was talking about show differences which is one of his favorite drums to beat and Lady Stoneheart is a great example uh, he seems to have said that Lady Stoneheart will be important to the rest of the story so Given that it was in a Chinese magazine, that could be an odd translation. So make of it what you will. But I found it interesting. I, I thought, you know, this could be him really saying that she's going to be there throughout or through most of, uh, th you know, through Dream of Springs. 
Yeah, I would tend to agree. As much as she could easily be like the flag bearer for the theme message of winds it's supposed to be the, the darkest book and it's going to have a lot of people dying and probably a lot of people coming back to life um she definitely fits into winds more than dream but i think all these things that we're talking about of her maybe going north and maybe finding one of her children or what she's going to be doing with john that's probably too much to fit into the one book now again if you'd asked me before i started doing these notes and getting all these normal ideas i might have said different but i do not now okay so it was Arya as Nymeria who once pulled her mother Catelyn dead from the river in a storm of swords to begin this dark Stoneheart cycle. Nymeria is currently in the Riverlands with an expanded wolf pack and I sometimes feel that Arya and Stoneheart have unfinished business given the thematic similarities in their stories regarding revenge and perhaps one is going to take revenge and perhaps the other could end up turning away from revenge and becoming a more wholesome person. So could the two ever meet again, including Arya as Nymeria with her wolf dreams? And I just want to say as an aside that our patron Raymond wondered if Sansa could be the one to kind of end Stoneheart, but I chose to focus on Arya because of those thematic similarities that I saw, and I thought that maybe the chances of Arya and Stoneheart are greater than Sansa and Stoneheart. But what do you think, Joe? Yeah, I don't think I'm breaking the mould here to suggest that Arya could come back and give her give her mother the gift of mercy and kind of end what she began in the first place and maybe free Catelyn from whatever hell the, the inhabiting this body is, but freeing her from vengeance at the same time, whilst also maybe delivering the best possible news in that one of her children is alive. Maybe she's been with Aya for a while, maybe Aya comes out of the shadows, and the last thing that Catelyn ever knows is that one of her children has survived. That would still be a, a pretty good ending. Now, it might be a bit too much to hope for that Aya observes enough to learn that this kind of revenge obsession is a bad idea but if she's with her for enough time then who knows it would definitely fit and to be honest with me it clicks in with what I've uh, long been saying about Catelyn and Arya not being all that close in in the beginning of the book Catelyn is more linked to Sansa whereas Arya is kind of a tomboy so she's more with Ned and she likes Jon obviously she leaves with Ned so I don't think we even ever see Catelyn and Arya interact I can't remember off the top of my head but I definitely don't remember that um, so they need this kind of cap to their relationship, especially when I was so close to returning to her mother in Stormont. They've had that kind of um, emotional uh, link from I just feeling so close to the Red Wedding and everything that happens. So that would be very, very fitting, given that she's uh, so tied heavily to the Riverlands. And also it would be somewhat funny if the end of Catelyn is being killed by a blade that Jon Snow had built. That'd be cool. Yes, it would. Uh, I think Arya, yes. But it, in the North, uh, I think there's something important about Catelyn Tully. She became a she-wolf in the end. In A Game of Thrones, she tells herself, you must be a Stark for true now, like your son. And I truly believe, talked about it in our Catelyn episode years ago, that in the end, she got there. So... I actually believe it would be 
true mercy from Arya and maybe seeing what her mother has become might even be a catalyst for healing in her, um, you know, at, at, at the end there. So, yeah, definitely Arya. Yes, yeah, it's, it's something. Uh, there's something I can kind of waffle on about. I know, you know, but you've got a tough, uh, tough job of keeping us all on task here. But I can never get past the idea of all three Stark women reuniting in the Riverlands. It's kind of in my mind. I call it this kind of pathfinder idea because both girls have been following Catelyn's footsteps throughout the series. The Sands are at the Eyrie, and I trying to get to River Run and she goes to the inn where she uh, where Catelyn met Tyrion and everything and they've both shared the struggle they've had this really this really mirrored storyline of both trying to get home as Catelyn once did and they've also both taken half of her name so it'd be incredible to see them come back together and maybe bring a little bit of true Catelyn back before the end now it's incredibly unlikely on Sansa's part although it's possible for her still to get through to the Riverlands as we've said before, maybe moving the location north solves that. Maybe this all happens in the north and you've got a lot more time and access. And very, very quickly, because I can't resist, but whilst talking about Sansa, I want to mention an idea that's lodged in my head about Stoneheart meeting Littlefinger or Peter Baelish again. And okay, Sansa is more likely and she deserves to be the one to bring him down in Winterfell. I've, I've always thought that. But I can't deny how much joy I would get from Stoneheart being involved in his death in some way if she learns what he has done from Sansa of everything Sansa knows well okay we think Frey's a vengeance for Rob well Littlefinger dying would be vengeance for everybody for everything that's happened so that would be a, a great way for him to die to snap every illusion and lie out of him before he dies everything he wanted is in front of him and it's actually his death so that'd be a perfect conclusion to his horrible little arc that he is yeah, I think so. I <laughs> love that. I think that is one bit of vengeance that we could all feel good about. I would certainly uh, fist pump if Littlefinger got roasted on a spit. <laughs> I wouldn't feel guilty about that one. No. Yeah. Okay, so on to our final question. All this Stoneheart conversation has me chomping at the bit for the winds of winter. I'm sure it's the same with all you guys. To me... The show leaving her out gives book readers something fresh to look forward to. So I want to know, were HBO and the show right or wrong to leave out Stoneheart? What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I just think it was a missed opportunity. Have have any of you guys seen the video of Johannes Helker Johannesson? the actor that played Lem Lem and Cloak doing Lem's merit dialogue. And if you haven't, here we are on YouTube. When this stream is over in a few minutes, Google Lem Lem and Cloak or search for Lem Lem and Cloak on YouTube and watch it. it it's a couple minutes long. Amazing. Amazing. They had, they had, you know, the cast, some small adjustments. They could have included one of the most powerful and gut-wrenching narrative threads in the saga. And, um, also, for what it's worth, made that brotherhood journey to the north, which was kind of weird. And they seemed just like this kind of, I don't know, it was a enfeebled version of, of whatever their arc is going to be. Uh, would have made all of that make a lot more sense. So uh, to me, it would have been an improvement. But hey, I know there are reasons why they do these things. So. Yeah, I think George is probably pretty glad that they did. Uh, hence his 
his reading his recent building up of her like we mentioned earlier because as you said yoke boy the show gives us the the bare bones of what to expect from each of the Stark kids, we we basically know the the big uh, plot points for all of them. But we've got no idea about Catelyn, so she remains one of his biggest pulls because he does relish the chance to still surprise us, given that so much of his story has gone uh, kind of out of his reach. As for whether it was best for the show, I think, yeah, we can all agree it would be better if they had. But I can see some arguments of why they didn't. Spacing, mainly, is because the, the Riverlands just disappeared for a while and we wouldn't have the build-up of rumour, of, of rumor, sorry, but it is doable. They definitely could have. And where it would have been best is a knock-on effect of having to give more focus to Beric's plight, because we need a bit more focus on him to give her his life to Catelyn, and then more focus inherently on Jon's own resurrection, which was definitely a flaw in how that wasn't focused on. I think all that does kind of flow quite well into what the overall purpose of Stone Art is in the books as well. It's, it's more than killing phrase. I think she does have something to teach us about reanimation, the nature of it, and the how and the why, and probably what it does to John because he's one of the biggest characters. It's a warning, perhaps. Overall, I think she's probably just the main vehicle to bring the the magical side of things to central Westeros and drag some of those elements up north. I know we didn't have time in the end to talk about what she would be doing with, with John, but I think it is going to be very, very important. Okay, thank you so much, Joe, for joining us today. This is your second Streams of Winter, and you've done brilliantly, as ever. So... I hear you two are doing a, a live stream for History of Westeros. Do you, do you want to talk about, give us the information for that, Joe? Yeah, it's our normal uh, wrap-up uh, episode because we've just finished Feast, so it'll be the usual. Uh, I don't envy Aziz for having to structure it because we normally just go through the POVs, and there's loads more this time, so I'm not sure how we'll be doing it, but uh, we'll be talking about what happens. Like you say, Lady Gwyn will be there, and Aziz, and I'm assuming Nina as well, hopefully. Uh, I think it is seven, no, eight. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm sure you all know the time to be there because you'll follow them along. That's what I thought. Yeah, so looking forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun, as always. Yes, three. So eight, three, eight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how's how's the Isle of Faces podcast, which you are the main presenter, how's that going? Yeah, like we say, so we've just finished Feast, so we get a little bit of a gap now until we move on to dance, which gives me some time to actually deliver on the patron episode of uh, reading out my Storm's End chapter from the um, from the Castles book that I did, because our lovely patrons have been very patient in me delaying that. And we're also going to have a little bonus kind of video episode, if I can uh, get our camera working, because, well, I'll show you here. You might be able to see it, you might not on the camera. I got this. 3D model thing of wow. uh, Winterfell for my 30th birthday. Podcasters, but... Joe's holding up the 3D model. Is that Winterfell? It is Winterfell. So I'm going to kind of do a, a walk on video walking tour of this Winterfell. So we'll see how that goes. So that'll, that'll be coming. It reminds me of the beginning of the, the Game of Thrones show where it's like a pop up book. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, it's like foldy paper model. It's pretty cool. So uh, we'll have a look at that. Okay, fantastic. Lady Wynne, why don't you announce our next live stream? We're, we're likely to go every other week, guys, for the foreseeable future. And so every other week, two weeks, what's the arrangement? Well, in uh, in two weeks, which will 
will be uh, Labor Day weekend. We're actually going to uh, be doing it on Sunday in the same time slot that Valerie Redis usually takes place, three o'clock on the Sunday, September 6th. We'll be talking about Circe with Mikhail Schick from Vassals of Kingsgrave. Uh, you may know her as Ink is Rain on Twitter. We are very excited. Uh, we changed it to Sunday to, so that we could have her be on with us. And uh, Circe is going to be the main topic in our new uh, episode, which the patron rollout starts on uh, Monday, day after tomorrow. Yeah, this is the Winds of Winter Primer. This is the fourth part now, and the focus is on King's Landing. So it's obviously a lot of Cersei, but there's a lot of smaller loose threads, the Kingsguard, the Small Council. We will arrange things so, you know, you don't have to do a full reread in Times for Winds. We'll recap all those loose threads and keep you all informed. That's what we're going to do. The patron rollout we're aiming for Monday. Looking forward to it. So we've got a busy weekend. Uh, but thank you so much, everyone, for joining us here today. Thanks to people who are watching this in the future or listening to the podcast version. Uh, appreciate it all. And I, I want to say a huge shout out to our moderators in the chat who keep things clean and ticking over. Thanks to all of you. It means a lot to us that you step up and do that job for us. And thanks to all our patrons. And if you want to be a patron of the show, there's lots of benefits. And of course, it really helps us. So head over to Radio Westeros on patreon.com and find us there and be a patron if you want to. So thank you all for tuning in today and for the rest of the weekend. Have a good one. Goodbye. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.